You've pointed out that there are a lot of places where we now know we didn't know enough to control. We can't predict. And so an ignorance-based worldview is to remind us to be humble, intellectually humble, to know about limits. Is that the core of the ignorance-based worldview? Why is it that we call humility a virtue? I think that humility is comes in a cultural handing down. So if you study the exits before you go into something, how many people are going to be involved? At what level of culture? And what are the chances of backing out in case things go sour? That, to me, is uh, sort of the beginning of wisdom. Welcome to Podcast from the Prairie with Wes Jackson. This is a show for the curious and the concerned, folks who like to ponder big questions and aren't afraid to face big problems. Wes Jackson co-founded the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas, an internationally renowned research and education center. He won a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant and the Right Livelihood Award, often referred to as the Alternative Nobel Prize. He's a geneticist working to change not only the way we farm and feed ourselves, but also the way we think about how the world around us really works and where we fit in it. Retired Professor Robert Jensen talks with Wes about his creaturely worldview and how to understand the past while imagining the future. Robert always prompts Wes to do what he does best, share distinctive and engaging stories about everything from his childhood to his quest to revolutionize agriculture. This is Episode 3, Mad About Science. Here's Robert Jensen. I'm Robert Jensen, your guide into the restless and relentless mind of Wes Jackson. Wes, good morning. Good morning. Let's start out with the cultural debate that's going on about science in 2020. You'll hear people say, well, he doesn't believe in science or she's for science. That assumes science is one obvious thing that everybody understands in the same way. So let's start with what the term means. What is science to you? It's a way of knowing, you know, how the world is. Some would say how the world works. And also, uh, science has as a primary contention that uh, verifiability has to run ahead of almost everything else. That means that if somebody does an experiment and they say they have results, then it's fair to ask, so how did you get those results? You know, what were your materials and methods? Uh, Starting with the Royal Society back in 1660 to 63, they had in Latin, uh, take no one's word. This puts quite a a bit of pressure on folk that uh, claim they have done a scientific experiment, and um, they better be able to show how they did it and what their results were and what their interpretation of the results are. Sometimes that gets overlooked. Yeah. So science goes on in laboratories, science goes on in classrooms, but science is really an approach to the world 
And in our everyday life, we could be more or less scientific, depending on how much we're, you know, really trying to to get to the bottom of things, understand the way things really work, and explain it to people in ways that can be challenged. Okay. Let's go back to what might be one of your early experiences with science. You've talked about how on the farm you grew up uh, outside of Topeka back in the 30s and 40s. There were agricultural scientists from K-State, Kansas State, who came to offer advice and collect data at times. These were the men you said uh, your family referred to as coming down from the college. Did you look up to them? Were they the first scientists you knew? And, and did you ever want to be one of them? I did look up to them, but as ordinary adults, no more than an area farmer. They were available to help. I counted them as different mortals, even though there was a certain posture uh, that they had. But, uh, you know, there are postures that go with being an electrician or a carpenter uh, or whatever. All right. So you didn't grow up with some dewy-eyed notion of scientists in white lab coats who were, you know, going to explain the world. They were just ordinary folks in that way. When you went off to college, uh, Kansas Wesleyan University. You majored in biology. After that, you got a master's in botany, a PhD in genetics. Um, so if you didn't, you know, from the day you were born, want to be a scientist, what led you into the sciences once you got into an academic setting? Well, once you get into the scientists, then you realize uh, there are more people thinking about things beyond mere utility. You know, it was amazing to me to hear about Einstein and uh, how Einstein arrived at certain conclusions and how was it that he began to think about the speed of light and so on. So um, you begin to see that there's a different world. So I took a genetics course and... Uh, Man, that was that was a wonderful course. And I think I had always been interested in heredity. Uh, I think growing up on a farm, that's fairly easy uh, to see dogs and cats and chickens and and horses and cows and, 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 and neighbors. And there are similarities and there are differences within species and so on. And how did that come to be? and that there was somebody that um, set out back in around 1865 that actually came up with the theory of heredity. And that was, uh, that was amazing that uh, this monk, often Bruno, he was able to uh, settle down in his garden and uh, lay out an experiment and uh, get some results. That was big. That was fascinating. Uh, and I think it was natural for a farm boy to want to know how does all this diversity come to be. After all that education and a bit of teaching, you eventually left the university, co-founded the Land Institute in 1976, and the Land Institute has done a lot of different kind of projects, including a lot of, of education. 
but it's probably best known today for its work in perennial grain development, which is plant breeding related agronomy. After a while, you weren't doing that science anymore. You weren't doing the the bench science, the plant breeding. Even with that reality that you've moved on to do other kinds of administration and writing and teaching, do you still feel like a scientist? Well, I think if you're going to call yourself a scientist, you ought to be doing experiments. I can say I was trained in the scientists, and I had a career in which I was a scientist, but um, uh, scientists are doing things. And uh, now, you know, I could wire my house and the outbuildings, you know, do the electrical work, but not feel like an electrician. My family members, when it comes to them doing the electrical work or the plumbing, uh, they were beyond me. But we, <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't think about who we are as uh, something special. We were simply human beings that were interested in certain things, and uh, you're doing your job. I was sort of amazed when I uh, saw, especially in graduate school, a certain kind of a posture and a, um, oh, a kind of an awareness that I am a scientist. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't that they were saying that, but there was a way of moving in the world that told me that they felt a certain pride in the label, in the title. And uh, not that there's anything wrong with being proud about your work. Mm-hmm. But uh, something about the elevation of it, uh, well, something I had to ponder. Yeah. So there's a difference you're suggesting between pride in your work and a kind of hubris or arrogance that says my work is particularly special. Yeah. Uh, Are you saying that when you were a scientist, you never thought of yourself as particularly special? No. No. Hmm. Because, for one thing, there were some people really doing some amazing work in discovery. You know, I didn't see myself comparable to them, so that may have been part of it. But uh, there were also people that were in the trades that were doing some rather amazing work. They had some kind of special gift that they took with them. So, uh, I don't know, this whole thing about assigning labels to what we're doing while we're here on Earth this short period of time is something of a mystery to me. Uh, Why is that? That that becomes, has a way of elevating, has a way of being divisive. Uh, has a way of not being uh, the rest of the mortals that are trying to make a go of it here on the earth. So, you know, that's somebody's thing and this is somebody else's thing. Yeah. Let's get back to science. So you come out of the sciences, you have a lot of respect for the accomplishments in science You think science is a way of knowing. 
is one of the most reliable ways we have of investigating the world. But you've also been a critic of science in various ways. So I'm going to start off that by uh, suggesting two sentences and getting your reaction to it. The first is, science is helping to destroy the world. The second is, science is necessary to save the world. Would you agree with those sentences, and what do they mean to you? Well, first of all, we're not going to destroy the world. Mm -hmm. Even that asteroid that wiped out the uh, dinosaurs 66 million years ago did not destroy the world. The world kept on going. Uh, but I think what you mean is uh, a severe reduction for future generations of people that, say, eventually leads to uh, extinction for humanity. Too many chemicals put into our body that our tissues have no evolutionary experience with. That's going to make life less good for us. Having said that, I'm taking uh, a couple of kinds of medicine that um, I'm glad for. I might be able to hold off a stroke or something. So, you know, that's helping me have a life that is, uh, I hope, uh, healthy and productive. Uh, so I'm glad for that science, but I also see that we have a lot of, um, how do I want to put it? We have a lot of faith in technology. I think there's a kind of technological fundamentalism that's at work in the world. Just look at the ads that are on TV. I see more stuff that I can't imagine uh, why people feel the need for all that stuff that's supposed to make us, I don't know, healthy, wealthy, and wise. Uh, so I'm glad for the world that um, has made it possible for me to live at least 20 years beyond what I might have lived mm -hmm. with, um, with prostate cancer. So I'm, I'm, I'm still here, and I might not have been. Well, there's science then that has aided human health, allowed us to live longer, live healthier in certain ways. But we live in a world in which we are bathed in chemicals that are the product of, um, you know, basically the last century, the industrial chemical world. All of these synthetic chemicals, mostly petroleum-based, they were developed by scientists. Uh, they had some immediate impacts in, in agriculture, for instance. Synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, pesticides, herbicides allowed dramatic increases in yields. But as you've pointed out, along with many others who are critics of industrial agriculture, the cost has been staggering, uh, both in the cost to human beings, the direct health impacts of some of this, but also the cost to the land and, and other animals. So in that sense, you know, science has, has undermined the health of ecosystems. 
the second sentence I, I suggested we talk about, science is necessary to save the world. So I guess the question is, how do we tame this, this beast, the scientific inquiry that can do so much damage? And how do we try to make it work for not only human health and human flourishing, but for the other living things as well? Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, it's important for us to recognize our ignorance. That our ignorance is, is of a broad scale. Uh, there's more ignorance that we're living with and contributing to than uh, the knowledge. Some start with the idea that knowledge is adequate to run the world. And uh, there's a great predominance of um, the technological power that humans, well, assume that we know enough. Or maybe we can get to learn enough to um, either foresee or hold off any of the bad consequences. Is that the arrogance of science you're talk you've talked about? Yeah. I think T.S. Eliot's uh, quote, it's in East... Coker, he said, uh, in order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. And uh, this is something that would be worthwhile for uh, especially the technological fundamentalists. Now, we know that a lot of ignorance is uh, self-induced. <laughs> The idea, for instance, that we are going to be able to head off every threat that is coming our way is an idea that doesn't get enough challenge. Then how did that happen? Well, because there's been enough gee whiz science that um, causes people to believe all we got to do is keep on coming up with gee whiz science. I think about a lot. What happened once we got the internal combustion engine? And uh, of course, the engine gives us speed. It gives us a kind of power, but it also is carrying us very fast toward uh a problem we not be able to solve, and that is uh, global warming. I mean, what ha will have been the gain after another half century or century from uh, that great invention uh, of internal combustion? But will there be people, say in a century, That'll be saying, you know where the mistake was that um, has us in this pickle. I think somehow or another, we just refuse to be really critical. But there's an old saying, nothing fails like success because you tend not to learn much from it. Hmm. 
And I think there's a lot of truth into that statement. Uh, let's go back and talk a bit more about ignorance, because when you argue for an ignorance-based worldview, you're obviously not celebrating stupidity. You're not saying, let's, let's strive to be stupid. So uh, you hosted a conference uh, some number of years ago to develop the idea of an ignorance-based worldview. Why don't you explain for people listening what you mean by that term? What is an ignorance-based worldview? Well, just to tell you what I think the uh, a value of it would be, it'll force us to remember things, hope for second chances, keep the scale small, study the exits. But let me get into the history of how we happened upon putting together that conference entitled uh, Toward an Ignorance-Based Worldview. We had an assembly of, I don't know, 25 or 30 people, and uh, eventually a volume came out called The Virtues of Ignorance. But to tell you how I got started on that, Hans Jenny, the great soil scientist, is dead now. UC Berkeley, he wrote a book called The Soil Resource, and Wendell got a copy of it, and he wrote me, Wendell Berry, and he quoted what Hans Jenny said. He said, the rain message enters the forest canopy and through crown drip, leaf drip, stem flow the rain message is transmitted downward to the forest floor where it leaves as it entered at random. And Wendell then said, is Professor Jenny's use of the word random a verifiable observation or a limit of perception? I suspect that the honest answer is it's a limit of perception. And then he went on to say, to use the language of science to appropriate the unknown is to do what the Greeks warned us against. It's a form of hubris. And uh, what I think we have to acknowledge is that when you set out to have a system analysis with some kind of a giant algorithm, you are really engaging in reductive science. Now, I'll give a little example here. There is, well, before the example, there is a thing called emergence. And uh, here's the example. You can take two gases, hydrogen and oxygen, and they come together, put them together, and you get wetness. The emergence is wetness. Now, systems theory, it has to know whether wetness is a product of hydrogen and oxygen, but when it was, enters it into its calculation, it's based on knowing already. Most, I think close enough to nearly all, of the, where we bring two things together or three things together, and we get some emergent property like wetness, uh, most of that is not predictable. You see, ignorance is just all over the place. And uh, so, 
How many times have we presumed that we're going to know what we're going to do tomorrow and come to the end of tomorrow and be surprised at how we didn't come very close to doing what we intended to do. It's, it's just right there all the time. But we keep hoping that our predictive abilities are enough that um, we're going to have some kind of a success. I was talking to a person that's uh, working on my barn and uh, the uh, various places like Lowe's that supply materials. Uh, once the virus came on, they uh, decided they better not be bringing in orders because people were not going to be able to work. Well, it turns out there more <laughs> need for the things to build houses and do the wiring and so on. And now they're in short supply because they went the wrong way on all of this. Well, why is that if we're so smart? If we start with the idea of ignorance as uh, all over the place, then we have caution. Just look at the cultural handing down that's come our way. How many times did our rural parents say, don't count your chickens before they're hatched, and don't get your hope up, and they have lived long enough in their communities that um, things just never quite worked out like we thought they would, and yet here we are. We're still here. So uh, I don't know. I think there must be somebody making a lot of money on selling the idea of certainty and hope. <laughs> yeah. So if, if we were going to sum up an ignorance-based worldview, it would start with the recognition that modern science and contemporary technology have dramatically expanded what we know and what we can do. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And you would say that comes out of a knowledge-based worldview. Yeah. The belief that we can know or in the future will know enough to control all of that. You've pointed out that there are a lot of places where we now know we didn't know enough to control. We can't predict. And so an ignorance-based worldview is to remind us to be humble, intellectually humble, to know about limits? Is that the yeah. core of the ignorance-based worldview? Yeah. Why is it that we call humility a virtue? I think that humility is, comes in a cultural handing down. So if you study the exits before you go into something, how many people are going to be involved? At what level of culture? And what are the chances of backing out in case things go sour? That, to me, is uh, sort of the beginning of wisdom. It doesn't mean that you don't do, but um, we got too much language that has to do with being dead certain. 
we have ways of saying, be positive. And I suppose what they mean is hope for a miracle. If something doesn't work, we move on to something else that's been promised. So on. So you count yourself as an environmentalist. And that's often seen as a, a kind of very contemporary movement with all sorts of insights about um, the ecological crises. But you also often hearken back to lessons learned on the farm from previous generations that long before environmentalism as a, an idea emerged. Is that been the case that you often think back on things you learned as a young person, as a child even? Uh, things you heard farmers say, things you heard your parents say, that dovetail with the the environmentalism that you you yeah. now would practice. I think so. I've thought about the twenty four, five to twenty seven different crops on our farm, and my my dad had good data on uh, those crops uh, back in the thirties, and. Uh, he had data on how much irrigation water was put on, and then he would talk about the yield for each crop. Good yield, no market. How many times did that show up? Another one, insects took the crop. And at one point, uh, that crop was doing well, and then some bug comes through. There was an acknowledgement of the need to have diversity. Don't put all your eggs in one basket attitude. Be ready to shift, to change. That was right there. Uh, I drive that, I buy that acreage today. It's been sold out of the family. There's one crop on that whole acreage now, soybeans. Uh so there's no diversity there. And so as a farmer, if you want to increase your income, uh, you move to one crop. Of course, you can't take risks about pests and, and pathogens. So you have to use the herbicides and the pesticides. And then all of a sudden, your eggs are all in that one basket and you're relying on the technology. Whereas your family farm... Uh, had enough different crops that you could lose one of them and still make a go of it that year. Is that yeah, how it worked? Right, right. They never went on relief during the 30s yeah. uh, because of the diversity. You know, you had the chickens, uh, you had the hogs, you had the milk cows, you had the uh, diversity of grain crops as well as vegetable crops. And there was always something that would be for sale. Yeah. And uh, that's the way you made it, is through diversity. Some crops get hit and others don't. Some species get wiped out, not necessarily wiped out all the way, but, you know, don't do very well. In mm -hmm. some years, they all do well, <laughs> but not very often. So let's go back to your family farm as a, a demonstration of an ignorance-based worldview. Your parents were farmers, and they certainly knew a lot about all of those crops. You know, you, you couldn't plant and, and care for and harvest that many crops if you didn't know quite a bit. So they had knowledge, 
But what I'm hearing you say is that they also knew the limits of that knowledge. Uh, and that one problem with contemporary farming is uh, we certainly know a lot more. You know, every decade brings more information from the scientists. We know a lot more, but we don't use that knowledge effectively. Is it fair to say that we trust knowledge too much and we should be a little a little more skeptical of what knowledge can really bring us? Well, the problem is that it's important to be experimental and uh, maybe discover some options that were not there before. We had up to 15 acres of strawberries, and we sold a lot of strawberry roots as well as people would come out from Topeka and pick the strawberries. Um, but my mother read somewhere about using geese to do the weeding of the strawberries. So they got geese, and it didn't work out very well. If you look at the shape of a goose's foot and you think about after you had irrigated and what kind of plopping is going to happen as it's drying out, it didn't take us long to get out of geese. I don't know where she learned, maybe a farm journal or something. So we tried geese and uh, it, that didn't work as a, very good way to weed. You're back there with a hoe anyway. And then another time, remember we had turkeys and the turkeys roosted on a kind of a windbreak and they were very good at getting grasshoppers and we thought that would help. Well, we lived along Highway 24 and 40 and uh, there were grasshoppers on the other side of the road. <laughs> and so turkeys didn't pay too much attention to the fact that this was an inner highway. And so they'd cross the road, and then you'd hear the screech and a clump, and there'd be dead turkeys <laughs> out on the highway. Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with eating roadkills, but it uh, didn't take long to get rid of turkeys. So you're always doing something in an experimental sort of way. And I guess most new things that you would read about, they didn't work out. Yeah. They worked out somewhere, maybe on a farm in Ohio or Illinois or Oregon or whatever. But they didn't work out in rural Topeka for us. But that experimentation, of course, you try it. And that's one of the things you notice about, I think, farmers of that time. They were trying lots of things and uh, so on. Now, one of the sadnesses for me is that all of that diversity that used to be along that highway from Manhattan, Kansas to Kansas City, you know, there were a lot of truck farms that were feeding people in the towns and the cities as well as on the farms. And now that's mostly gone. And uh, this is where that diversity, this is why I say that highly dense carbon destroys culture. And uh, 
destroys information. And culture is information rich. Uh, the highly dense carbon has a way of driving out the diversity. So you're saying that in the application of that in farming would be that uh, petrochemicals, the ease of using fossil fuels in, in machinery, all of that, um, that highly dense carbon, all that energy, uh, made it possible to plant and harvest a row of soybeans, and row after row of soybeans. Yeah. And the information, the cultural information about a diverse farm uh, got driven out. Is that how you see, you know, yeah. farming after World War II? Yeah. Energy driving out that knowledge? Yeah. In other words, if we say that highly dense carbon has the ability to make war on information, uh, the biological information, the species diversity within a crop, and the cultural information. It's been my observation that when you get a lot of highly dense carbon coming into the system, it looks to me like that there is a something of a decline in culture, of know-how. And uh, you also want to reduce the diversity within your crop so that every corn plant looks the same. There's kind of a saying, diversity is not your friend, but you've got to have it. You know, we don't want things maturing at a different time. We want them all to be harvested at once and sold on the market at once and then, then go to Florida uh, or somewhere. Yeah. You know, uh, that's the thing about the diverse farm. It has a way of keeping you there. Yeah. Uh, and especially if you got milk cows, <laughs> yeah. they'll keep you there. So the energy comes in. It makes a larger scale of farming possible, at least in the short term. Maybe it improves the, the economics. Uh, but you're destroying information, it looks like you're saying, in the sense of genetic information in the crops. You have fewer crops. And they are more homogenous so that you can use the pesticides and the herbicides. Yeah. And at the same time, you're losing cultural information. People are not doing as diverse uh, a range of activities. That's all a product of science in some sense. So I want to get back to this problem. Modern science and the application of it through engineering and technology has created the potential for that scale. Uh, it's created the chemicals that make that kind of farming possible. And you're pointing to the really uh, disastrous consequences it's had for both landscapes and people in rural America. Okay, if that's all a product of science, why are you still a scientist? Why not turn your back on science and say science is the problem? Yeah. If science creates all this havoc. Yeah. In other words, do we still need science? And if so, why? Well, if you talk to our scientists here at the land, and it, not just here, but at Kansas State and Iowa State and so on, uh, they all recognize the importance of diversity, and they all really keen on what's been added in genetics, uh, partly because of our computational power and so on. And uh, perhaps I've uh, simplified the... Uh, the accusation about what happens with the highly dense carbon, because 
It's also allowing them to, for instance, a better knowledge of the genome, what that is doing in terms of adding a certain amount of information. Uh, so <laughs> you don't want to see that go out the window. So, see, this is where things are true and things are false. And sometimes, how is it we put it? Um, Dick Lewinton and uh, Dick Levins at Harvard. Uh, and I got this out of the dialectical biologist. Things are similar. This makes science possible. Things are different. This makes science necessary. All right, so we need the diversity, but on a case-by-case -case basis, it's not your friend. And at various times in the history of science, there have been important advances that have been made by uh, abstracting away differences to reveal similarity. In other words, on the one hand, we want them subtracted away. And on the other hand, we want to emphasize the richness of variation uh, within a, what we're considering a uniformity. Now, uh, as Lewinton and Levins both say, neither choice by itself is ultimately misleading. The, the, <laughs> this is the thing about science. What makes it rich are the internal contradictions. And the problem is, is that if we think that we have the recipe, then one has to be prepared to realize where that recipe uh, breaks down in meeting the perceived needs that we have at a particular moment. If you think you've got it, then that's the best indication that you don't. The living with the uncertainty. Now, what does this say about my uh, earlier statement? Highly dense energy destroys information of the cultural and biological varieties. Is that true? Yes. Is that not true? Yes. But where are we talking about it? And I'm saying if we're looking at crop production in the Kansas River Valley in the 30s and the 40s and even into the 50s, then diversity was the friend. Now, if one is to be a farmer there now, with all the highly dense carbon coming at that acreage, unimaginable highly dense carbon because the, those were fields that had draft horses in them and lots of people on the land. It was a sufficiency of people and that got replaced by a sufficiency of capital. And so when we think about what the future is going to be, then is when we have to look back to that period where it was a more creaturely worldview. So the context of the situation is what's important. And uh, as we think about a future, a sun, more sunshine future, then we're going to have to look to 
the experimental nature of the folk that were willing to hatch out a bunch of turkeys and then quit that one and hatch out a bunch of geese and quit that one and keep the diversity going because that was a uh, featuring a Kirchley sun-powered system. Uh, but once you bring that fossil fuel in there and the horses go and the tractor comes and uh, the mines and the wellheads open up. Okay, so let's say that there's a kind of folk science, of informal science that your parents practiced in, in experimenting with new methods. Uh, what about modern science? When we use the term thinking of laboratories and, and instruments and computers, you've pointed out that modern science has brought much destruction to the ecosystems of the farm and, in fact, the ecosystems of the whole planet. What is the role of modern science in an ecologically sustainable future? Is there a role for modern science and what would it be? Well, there's a role for modern science, but I think folks are going to have to acknowledge that this economic system we have is a high energy dependent system and that it will continue to want to turn out stuff. And it will say, well, we will make that stuff more efficient. That's not good enough. It's a population problem. There are two populations problem. There are too many people and there are too many things. And uh, they both need fed. And we've got to begin to starve, uh, certainly, the things population. And uh, find our satisfaction coming from something else. And now what kind of a science is that? I don't know. To what extent will physics and chemistry and biology contribute to that versus to what extent will it be some of the other sciences? I don't know just how that'll be, but that's certainly where I think we need to be headed. The next podcast, episode number four, we're going to talk about another way of knowing about the world, the religious approach to understanding the world, how we're going to tame our appetites might be a good place to start that discussion of religion. We'll be back with the next episode talking about religious traditions and their value in trying to search for a sustainable world. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Podcasts from the Prairie with Wes Jackson and Robert Jensen. For more information on their work, just search for each of their names online. If you enjoyed this conversation, remember to tell your friends to look for it wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks also to our partners, the New Perennials Project and the Land Institute. For more information or to make a donation, go to landinstitute.org. This podcast is produced by Bill Vitek, Bob Sly, and me, Michael Johnson. Music and audio production services are provided by Marcelo Radulovich at Titicacaman Studios. This has been a production of Perennial Films. Thank you.